I think uh, we should sort of uh, begin now. Um, we've given people a bit of time to join in. Um, so Claire, I think we can start recording if that's okay. Okay, hi everyone. Very warm welcome to the first of Oxford's uh, Modern South Asian Studies Seminars of 2022. Uh, I'm Nenika Mathur. I'm the director of the Contemporary South Asian Studies program here, well, here as in virtually at Oxford. And I'm delighted to be chairing the series on the theme of researching South Asia. Uh, I'm going to just say a few words on uh, the thinking behind the seminar series this term before I introduce today's incredible panelists. So for the next eight weeks, what we're going to be doing in the seminar series is that we're going to be holding um, these Zoom panels on specific themes, so which will range from Kashmir to climate change uh, to queer politics. Um, and we're going to do this to discuss the political, methodological, and ethical challenges of working in these specific fields, uh, of course, in South Asia. Um, and we're going to do, you know, we're going to have these conversations uh, by focusing on each panelist's own particular research project, um, their methodological orientations, and intellectual trajectories. And what we're going to try to do in these panels is we're going to try to set up a broader conversation between disciplines and academic orientations. Um, the, the format is going to be that we're going to have this conversation uh, for around an hour, I think, between us, and then we're going to open it up to the floor. Uh, and we'd love to get, you know, questions, comments, uh, any thoughts from all of you, because I can see uh, from the registrations that, you know, we've got people signed up from around the world for this. So thank you so much for being here with us uh, this afternoon or evening or morning, wherever, whatever it is for where you are. Okay, so without further ado, uh, of course, today we're discussing Kashmir and the very unique challenges of working on or in Kashmir. Um, this is, of course, a very long standing concern. But in recent years, especially after the application of Article 370 in August 2019, the intense difficulties and sensitivities of working on Kashmir have become much more apparent. Um, that said, it's not entirely clear that we're still having the kinds of conversations that might be needed amongst academics on how one is to study a place like Kashmir um, and what the complexities and ethical conundrums of such research projects may be. Uh, keeping that in mind, uh, we have this sort of amazing panel uh, together uh, today who are going to be, uh, where we're going to be discussing this question of what it means to research uh, Kashmir. And we have historians and anthropologists with us on the panel today. I'm going to just quickly introduce them and then we'll get this conversation going. Um, so we have Professor Mona Bahan, who is the Fort Maxwell Professor of South Asian Studies at the University of Syracuse. She's a cultural anthropologist whose work explores the role of economic and infrastructural development in counterinsurgency operations and people's resistance movements to protracted war and conflict. Mona is the author of Counterinsurgency Development and the Politics of Identity. From Warfare to Welfare, which is her 2014 book. She is the co-author of a more recent uh, book called Climate Without Nature, a critical anthropology of the Anthropocene, and she's the co-editor of Resisting Occupation in Kashmir. We then have Professor Mohammad Junaid, who's an assistant professor of anthropology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. Uh, Junaid has a PhD from the City University of New York with research on youth activism and political subjectivity in Kashmir. He has written extensively on Kashmir's history and politics. And finally, we have uh, Professor Hafsa Kanchwal, who is an assistant professor of South Asian history at Lafayette College. Her current book project, Controlling Kashmir, State Building Under Colonial Occupation, focuses on post-partition state building in Indian-occupied Kashmir. Hafsa has written and spoken on Kashmir for a variety of news outlets, including the Washington Post, Al Jazeera English, and the BBC. 
So hi, uh, Mona, Junaid, and Hafsa. Thank you so much for joining us today. And perhaps I can begin this conversation by asking you about the trajectory of your own research and writing, as well as your own positionalities vis-a-vis -vis your work on Kashmir. Um, Hafsa, I wonder whether you'd like to sort of kick off this conversation. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining this really important session. And thank you to Nanika for organizing it. Um, so I come to this work situated as a Kashmiri Muslim who was born in Kashmir, but spent most of my life outside of Kashmir and um, identified with the political struggle from a young age. I became interested in history as a discipline um, because so much of how this issue gets addressed or discussed was a battle um, over historical narratives, and I wanted to understand that better. So in terms of my own positionality, my experience doing research on Kashmir has been twofold. One is that I've encountered quite a bit of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim sentiment throughout my academic career, and especially in South Asian studies. And two, as a scholar situated in the US or Western Academy, um, I also acknowledge that I still am able to benefit from certain privileges and levels of access and visibility that is simply not possible for Kashmiri scholars elsewhere. I think the first point is especially important, and it's not something that people feel comfortable openly speaking about. And of course, we can speak of the ways in which Islamophobia or anti-Muslim sentiments emerge in the academy overall. Um, but I will say that in South Asian studies, it's particularly rampant. And this is because of the makeup of the field is largely elite or upper caste Indian scholars who make you feel that you, as a Kashmiri, as a Muslim, and as a female, simply do not uh, belong and while they reproduce their own networks of kinship. And a particular type of secular liberalism, which in the Indian context is masked for soft Hindutva, normalizes India's colonial subjugation of Kashmir. So I've often heard that my work is too political, and because I am a Kashmiri Muslim, I lack objectivity, which of course is interesting um, because Indian scholars who work on Kashmir or engage with our work are naturally seen as being objective, even, they, even if they have been unable to come out of their own nationalist frameworks, or even if they have intimate ties to the colonial state, that is. And so because of the toxic culture within South Asian studies, um, I found that many of my mentors, role models, or people that I'm, I, was, I, am, I am an intellectual community with um, tend to be outside of South Asian studies, working on Palestine, Middle East studies, Islamic studies, Africana studies, or indigenous studies. And the second point is that despite these privileges, I do acknowledge that being, or despite these issues, I do acknowledge that being in the US Academy gives me certain privileges, access to resources, publications, conferences, and ability to teach, research, and write a bit more freely. And so I do often think about how these hierarchies of knowledge production and how my work on Kashmir, while important to me in terms of my political, ethical, and moral commitments, also may eventually grant me tenure or be published in a book form. And I understand that that's a privilege, but also comes with a responsibility um, to not simply extract knowledge, but also to give back. And we can talk about that a bit later in the conversation. Sorry, Junaid, would you like to? Yeah. Thank, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Um, and thank you, Nainika, for organizing this. Um, so it's a, a little bit of a complicated answer. Uh, I, I grew up in Kashmir. Um, I was born there. I am, of course, Kashmiri Muslim. And I didn't realize that until much later. 
I am in a way um, sort of a product of the 1990s um, when India launched this long, decades-long uh, counterinsurgency war there. Um, I, I grew up in South Kashmir in a place called Islamabad. We used to call it Islamabad and the government used to call it Anantanag. Um, many of my fellow students, colleagues, um, uh, were injured. Some kind of were disappeared during this time. And uh, But one of the things that... Um, I noticed early on was that there wasn't much written about that experience of the 90s. Uh, we didn't have our intellectuals had been like put out of circulation in a very colonial fashion. There were very few journalists who were writing and um, so while we were going through all of this there was no kind of articulation of it except in political speeches by political leaders. Um, which drove me uh, eventually in the late 1990s to, uh, to India, to North Indian universities, um, where I began to, first of all, feel extremely dislocated and a sense of dissonance between my experiences back in Kashmir, back home, and in North India, where life seemed uh, intense, but also not, um, you know, threatening all the time. Um, but I became kind of aware of my Kashmiriness and my Kashmiri Muslimness um, because of the majoritarian nationalism that pervaded not only the uh, academic spaces, but also, of course, public sphere. Um, eventually, when I started my master's, I realized I couldn't ask many questions in the cho my chosen field of inquiry, which was international relations at the time. It was highly structured around nation states um, and uh, the nationalist perspective um, and warmongering, uh, you know, all of the, that terminology that felt quite alien to me. And I felt like I needed to have both uh, uh, an academic home, a disciplinary home to my inquiries, as well as a new academic home, which eventually uh, by certain uh, kind of um, effort and luck, I ended up in New York to pursue my PhD. And uh, anthropology seemed like we had these two distinct traditions. You know, one was this imperial tradition in anthropology, um, and which was basically, um, you know, anthropologists kind of going as embedded journalists going into these war zones and uh, conducting research and using these, this knowledge instrumentally um, to support uh, imperial power. But there was also this critical tradition in anthropology, which had kind of flinched away from this imperial tradition. And I just felt instantly attached to that, that this second tradition, this critical anthropological tradition. Um, and, um, and I realized that, you know, I could ask so many questions that had been left unasked. And that's, drew to my, that's what drew to my, me to my research. I was working with young people in Kashmir, but I called them youth activists, but they were actually quite old. You know, they were like people who had been fighting against uh, colonialism in Kashmir for like 60, 70 years. Um, but somehow I ended up calling the young, young activists because the Indian state always used the term young as a way, you know, to call them immature or um, not fully developed. And um, so I kind of wanted to invert that term in my research. Uh, and that's what has brought me um, to, to my field of inquiry. But it is really the politics and ethics of anthropology that has attracted me to it. Thank you, Janet. Mona? Hi, thank you, uh, Nenika, um, for, for this very important panel. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so yeah, again, I mean, a complicated question for me as well. I am a Kashmiri Pandit. I, I was born into a Kashmiri Pandit family. 
Um, and Kashmir Pandits, uh, the kind of politics, uh, the community on the, on the whole has had towards Kashmir has been, um, as many of you might know, um, deeply problematic uh, because there is uh, this belief that India, um, that Kashmir is an integral point. Self-determination is unfounded or this claim to self-determination by Kashmir Muslims is unfounded. So I did grow up in a Kashmiri Pandit household, uh, but at the same time, what complicated my intellectual, my ethical, political commitments to Kashmir um, was the fact that my grandfather was um, a, a very integral part of the Kashmiri movement for self-determination from the 1940s onwards. So in some ways, I grew up um, in a very contradictory setting. On the one hand, I had this, uh, you know, this role model in my grandfather who uh, stood up for rights and justice and felt very strongly that self-determination for Kashmiris was for all Kashmiris, not just for Muslims. And it was not a concession, it was a right. And uh, people should stand up for it, regardless of what their religious affiliation uh, or ethnic affiliation might be. And on the other hand, I had deeply conservative family members. So I grew up writing, uh, and, um, and, and, and struggling with these contradictions early on. So for me, in many ways, um, uh, this, this notion of Kashmir as a peaceful paradise before the 1980s never really existed. Um, and, and that was formative. Um, this was not a peaceful space. That was inherently... Um, uh, problematic with uh, how India had been treating Kashmir and deceiving Kashmiris all along. So for me in the 1990s, when I turned to anthropology, which is a much longer story and I'll spare you that part, but when I turned to anthropology, um, I immediately wanted to work in, uh, in, in Kashmir, but unfortunately, as we know, um, so I ended up going to Ladakh, uh, and this was not necessarily a place, but I think at the time my thinking was Ladakh and Kashmir have, you know, the, the way um, they have become divided uh, politically, socially, ethnic, ethnically, has had long-lasting implications for how we understand the Kashmir issue. So for me, a part of it was to recognize and to understand Ladakh as a space and, and historicize Ladakh as a space and historicize this relationship between Ladakh and Kashmir. And I recognized uh, early on, you know, um, how, it, how the scholarship on Kashmir unfortunately replicated the way the state wanted to see the region of Jammu and Kashmir as a, as a divided space, as a fragmented space, as you know, a Kashmir issue being only limited to the Kashmir Valley and so on and so forth. And I realized what happens also in anthropology, unfortunately, because we get so committed to a space whose sense of this larger history, larger politics. And that's something I have through my work tried to um, respond to or tried to um, um, you know, engage with is this idea of the divide and rule policy. And then replicated in scholarship 
because we tend to see Ladakh as completely separate from Kashmir uh, rather than seeing um, the, the issues uh, that Ladakhis, for example, suffer being on the line of control, uh, living on the line of control, how those are longer struggle for uh, Kashmiri rights. Uh, Kashmiri rights, and when I use Kashmir, I, I, I use Kashmiri as a very broad category. So essentially then, right, growing up, it was this eternity of the border, uh, this the freezing of lines, uh, whether these are religious lines, these are linguistic, ethnic lines, religious lines, I wanted to contest those because, as I said, I had seen those lines really uh, creating rifts within families, within my own family. Um, so that's what kind of brought me to uh, both um, anthropology, but also to Kashmir in a very particular kind of a way. So yeah, as a, as a Kashmir Pandit, going back to this question of privilege, so yes, on, in some, in many ways, as a Brahmin, I'm sure I didn't realize I was a Brahmin in Kashmir. Right? That's how caste operated in Kashmir. It was as it does everywhere. Right? For Brahmins, they don't realize they have a caste. Uh, so it was very much along those lines. When I was in Kashmir, I didn't realize I had a caste until we, I, I got to Jammu, uh, where caste is more predominantly, or it's more sort of palpable. Brahmin. Um, but at the same time, I was also a Brahmin who belonged to a, a family that was, uh, you know, derided uh, uh, for being Pakistani Kashmiri Pandits, uh, given my own history. So I, there was a lot of this, um, yes, privilege and also a, a lot of uh, pushback against uh, the kinds of politics that uh, our family and me uh, later on stood for. Um, so yeah, that's that's what brought me. To, and anthropology, I, I, going back to what Jeanette said, I feel anthropology really allowed uh, for this kind of, um, this contradiction. I could live with contradictions. I could derive my identity through those contradictions. I didn't have to fix things. I didn't have to uh, discipline my being in order to live and exist. How anthropology happened. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mona. You know, I'm going to come to this question of in a minute, but perhaps before we come to that, I wonder whether I could ask you, you know, now that all three of you have been so uh, sort of upfront about your positionality and your own trajectories to your research, I mean, if you could just tell us a bit about what, what is it like to do research in Kashmir? That um, you faced or that you think that differently placed researchers go through? Uh, and perhaps uh, Janet could ask you to uh, to begin. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, well, if you are, first of all, if you are a Kashmiri Muslim researcher, there are so many spaces that are um, by default foreclosed to you. Uh, you're not allowed in those spaces. Um, in fact, the Indian state sees Kashmiri Muslim intellectual threatened story in Kashmir. Um, so there is, is very little you can do as a, um, then there are of course of course like institutional controls. Um, Kashmir University, which is our main university in Kashmir. Um, I have seen the struggles of uh, the scholars there, bright scholars, brilliant scholars who would thrive elsewhere if they had a, they had some degree of freedom to explore the kind of questions they want to explore. Uh, but um, for instance, Kashmir University's uh, chief patron is the governor and the governor of the uh, state, he um, 
has had has to keep tabs on what is going on in Kashmir University. Um, so um, I have come across many scholars in Kashmir who have to modulate, change, tra- you know, find different ways to ask questions of even simple sociological, anthropological questions, um, you know, to pursue research. And once they get into, get a PhD or something, uh, even afterwards, you know, there's really little avenue to ask critical questions. Um, um, I remember uh, one interaction I had, I was, I was teaching at a university in Kashmir for a year in 2007, 2008. And I remember somehow the governor came to the university and um, we were asked to kind of meet and greet. Uh, so hesitantly I went and I sat around the table and um, so I don't know why in this Chomskyan moment, I asked him, what is the role of the university in a moment of crisis? Um, because there was protests going on in 2008, um, you know, um, at the time. And I remember what he said. He said that the university must uh, do, uh, the, the best thing the universities like this can do is do research on uh, animal ha- husbandry, uh, handicraft, and, you know, things like that were totally inane. Um, it made no sense. But um, so what I'm trying to say is that research is extremely difficult. I mean, um, uh, you know, it is um, when you talk about doing research in Kashmir, positionality is super important. Um, yeah, you know, Kashmiri Muslim researcher is like the opposite of privilege. It's really um, um, sort of a threatened category of inquirer. Thanks, Janet. Um, Mona, would you like to? Sure. Um, you know, I uh, and I, I sort of want to approach this question not not differently, but I want to expand this category of research and and talk about expression, any kind of expression, be it political, social, um, cultural, and I think that is what uh, is at stake for most Kashmiris who dare to think. Uh, who dared to ask questions, who dared to write. And it's, it's, it, this, this issue applies as much to researchers as it does to journalists, as it does to other uh, activists and advocates. Um, I mean, we know, uh, some of you might know that Kurim Parvez, who is one of the most well-known human rights defenders and advocates, Kashmiri advocates, uh, co-founder of JKCCS, is in prison right now. Uh, and we don't even have the charge sheet filed. But uh, that case sort of represents what is happening on the ground right now. Um, you know, Adil's restatement that uh, is the frontier of war now. I mean, he said that for, the, for India too, it was not just Kashmir. But I think what we have to recognize is the implications of something like that for Kashmiris is compounded, right? Obviously by the fact that there are these institutions <laughs> Uh, juridical, legal, military, um, that have made it impossible and, and educational, going back to Janet's point, that have made it impossible for uh, Kashmiris uh, to think and write and express. And this goes, of course, back to the 1940s, right? The kind of surveillance machinery, the kind of uh, uh, setup to uh, scuttle voices, to silence them, to criminalize any form of dissent. Uh, has had a very long history in that region, and uh, it's 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 only become worse since 2019, 
just recently, I mean, yes, day before yesterday, the, the press club of Kashmir was shut down. Uh, and that to many was sort of the last bastions, uh, the bastion of, uh, you know, some freedom of expression, if you will. Um, so what's happened, uh, and, and a friend of mine, I was just speaking with him the other day, said there are two projects, right, of the Indian government in Kashmir right now. One is dismantling, the other one is erasure, right? And those two are happening at a force that we can't even envision sitting here. Uh, so I just want to make sure we recognize this larger context within which research is happening or not happening or not allowed to happen. For a lot of us sitting here today, Lahav Sarjaneh and I, it's not even a question of research. The, the fundamental question that we are faced with in this moment is whether we can even return. Forget the question of research. Can we go back and see our family members who we haven't seen in years? So I think these are existential questions for us. These are not questions simply about research and how, where we are in our careers, in our professional capacities. Um, so that, that's, that is what is essentially at stake. Having said that, um, you know, having, and, and I'm as a Kashmir Pandit woman, uh, which is also, again, I, I'm calling myself that uh, only because that is something I have to, uh, I have to own. I have to claim that. And I was just uh, telling my friends the other day, you know, this is an identity I have tried to distance myself from for the longest time, because for the longest time I've been wanting to renounce this identity. Uh, but now I actually want to embrace it. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, it's because now the community is trying to disown you, right? And what they want to do is they want you to not have your name, uh, the Bhan name, the last name, uh, obfuscate this clean, neat narrative of uh, Kashmir Pandit victimization in Kashmir, right? So for me, therefore, to own that identity even more strongly now and to make uh, make sure that my voice is registered, not simply as a Kashmiri, but as a Kashmir Pandit, has become a critical uh, uh, intervention in and of itself. Um, so in any case, uh, and, and going back to uh, this question of research and what does it mean to do research, it is also not simply about your identity anymore. It's also about uh, how publicly visible you are, right? So it could be that in the 1990s, when I started my work in Ladakh, I could work in Ladakh because nobody had could Google you and find what your opinions were. But now it's next to impossible for me to visit uh, places along the line of control and do the things that I did in the past. Having said that, you know, when in the past I did those things, I was able to actually speak with the military in, uh, in Ladakh. And I, I, and I could do it only because I was a woman and I was a Kashmir Pandit woman. Had I been a Kashmiri Muslim woman or a Kashmiri Muslim man, there was just no way that work would have been uh, at all possible. Having said that, I, I was in a relationship with a Kashmiri Muslim and the military knew it. Um, and that, just my, the fact that I was in a relationship with someone, um, or, or not someone, but a Kashmir Muslim, became the reason why I was kicked out of the village, uh, because uh, there were, um, were these stories and there were these charges against me for being a spy, uh, for being uh, an ISI operative for the longest time, and so on and so forth. Um, again, a much longer story there, but what I want to say here is, that uh, the, the military in Kashmir has been part of this project of disciplining bodies for the longest time. And they discipline different bodies differently, right? So as a Kashmir Pandit body or female body, the disciplining that happened was through 
overt and covert messages about, you know, making sure that I was uh, not marrying somebody that could create problems for me in the future. So they were literally marital choices that uh, they, they, they were um, invested in uh, as well. And that, of course, we know is part of this, you know, the, the way the state works to um, make sure you're towing the line, right? Uh, the other thing, the other issue with uh, research that I have found in my own work is uh, working in villages in North Kashmir, for example, where I did work on uh, dams and counterinsurgency was extremely difficult. And this is in part because these villages along the line of control have been, uh, you know, um, purposefully fragmented by the military because of the kind of counterinsurgency networks that they have set up to turn one person against the other, to turn one villager against the other. So when you're walking into these villages, you're not walking into these, you know, you're not walking into pure spaces of resistance either. You are walking into extremely uh, difficult situations. It's a minefield of uh, issues, right? And so you have to be very, very cautious about where you're present even. So you might not even you might not actively be asking questions. The very presence, the very fact that you're present there, can lead to problems for a lot of people, uh, inadvertently or inadvertently. And I think we need to be very mindful of how the state works, how a counterinsurgency state works, how a military occupation works, in order for us to one pick the issues that we do, and then decide whether our presence whether or not we're saying something um, or not uh, can create uh, a lot of issues for people. And, you know, this is really difficult for anthropologists where we privilege, we've always privileged access. We've always privileged notions of, um, you know, rapport establishment or, or getting people to speak to us. You know, in some cases, as I've realized over, over the years, it's better not to be present. It's better not to have access and it's better to just not be fine. I think we just have to come to terms with that. Thanks, Mona, for actually raising those two points about just sometimes presence itself can be so harmful. And anthropologists have just not thought about that. Um, and also, I think the point you made before about how actually these are not just questions of the struggles of research, but these are existential questions, as you put it, that, you know, can you go back home? Can you meet your family again? I mean, you know, these are enormously disturbing um, questions that we need to really think about, which are often not thought about when people talk about other spaces in the world. So thank you for raising them. Hafsa, uh, wanted whether- Yeah, so um, I wanted to say a bit about my own research, but also share some insights from Kashmiri colleagues currently based in Kashmir. Um, so I did my archival work in 2013 to 2014, and my research is on state building. So I needed to access bureaucratic documents of the Kashmir state, as well as the Indian government's communications with the Kashmir state. So I was able to get access to the Srinagar state archives at the time, but it was very, very difficult to obtain any materials from um, on Kashmir from the National Archives of India. So most of the requested materials came back non-transferable. Um, so just on a very broad level, you're dealing with institutional restrictions on scholarship on Kashmir. Um, and then, of course, there's a day to day of going of doing research under constant uncertainty due to strikes and curfews and the kinds of mental, emotional challenges that exist for people in Kashmir. Um, you know, you're also cognizant of that as well. Um, 
And then in terms of the experiences of Kashmiri scholars, uh, as Junaid mentioned, university life in Kashmir isn't like elsewhere. There's no student unions, talks or symposiums are uh, subject to official approvals, and there's institutional limitations to the type of research scholars can undertake. Um, and in particular, since 2019, Kashmiri scholars have felt increasingly vulnerable. The level of surveillance is immense, including on social media, and scholarship is being criminalized and subject to anti-terror laws like the UAPA, which has already been used on various members of Kashmiri civil society. Many academics are being visited by state intelligence and asked information about their work, who they know, and so on. Colleagues have told me that they're constantly deleting their field notes or information from their phones and laptops. Um, they don't keep a record of their work because of regular checkpoints, frisking, and um, raids. And they also fear approaching potential interlocutors in case they may extend the surveillance grade, grid on them. Um, and even travel within Kashmir is tricky for field work. As one colleague told me, for years now, police and other state forces have looked at inter-town and inter-village travel or stay with suspicion in Kashmir. For example, if a person is traveling to a certain village, he becomes the first suspect during the numerous daily security checkups on the roads. The night stay is increasingly becoming difficult. The guest is the first suspect in the cordon and search operation. And the state doesn't allow some Kashmiris to leave Kashmir for work or study. They've been placed on a no-fly list. And many Kashmiris, as we've mentioned before, who are currently outside are afraid to go home in case they may not be allowed to travel again. So these are the kinds of dilemmas and um, calculations that students, researchers, and scholars have to consider. Everything is set up in a manner to completely clamp down on scholarship and to silence people. So all of this really begs the question, how does scholarship even happen in conditions of settler colonization? Thank you. Um... Thank you so much, Hamza. Uh, and that's a really sort of important point you've sort of raised. How do you even have something like scholarship here? Um, if I could just sort of come back to uh, this, what we were briefly touching upon earlier, which is about uh, different disciplines. You know, so Bojunet and Mona talked a bit about anthropology. You've talked about access to state archives as a historian. Um, and I wondered, you know, thinking about uh, those who can still sort of continue to do research in Kashmir, though, as all of you have sort of pointed out, that space is really shrinking dramatically pretty much by the minute. Um, what kind of sort of ethical guidelines do you think people should consider? And I, I want to think this through, particularly through a disciplinary lens, right? So a political scientist might have a slight position on it from, say, an anthropologist. Um, Muna, I wonder whether you have any thoughts on this to just begin? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that that's the thing. Um, it, different fields come at it, uh, come at this question of ethics very differently. Um, and, and, and that's in part why um, there's been so much harm already caused, right, by um, uh, a lot of uh, scholars and academics in, in Kashmir. And, you know, part of it is I feel the Kashmiri community takes it for granted. Um, and this includes, uh, you know, my own work in, in the Ladakh region, for example, I said, I was seen as a spy for the most, uh, you know, at, at least in the beginning. And um, you have to understand it's not a personal attack. It's a structural position that you occupy as somebody who comes from a very particular kind of a community and that is trying to do research in these um, uh, extremely remote, uh, quote unquote, and heavily securitized spaces. So a part of it is I think recognizing that there's nothing personal about these issues and 
uh, recognizing your structural location is, uh, is, is supremely important. And I, sometimes I really do feel, uh, you know, people, if you have thin, thin skin, then, <laughs> then maybe Kashmir is not the place for you because, you know, people have suffered so much over the years that um, they are ruthless about their scrutiny of who you are. And I've appreciated that, you know, in hindsight, I actually think back to the villagers and I appreciate the kinds of questions I was asked every day, you know, by a 10 year old uh, kid who would come up to me and say, I've heard you have a hidden microphone in your bag. You know, it was my tape recorder. And at the moment I'd, I'd get really peeved by this uh, little kid, but now I, I, I do appreciate uh, the concern and the care and the anxiety that people have vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the state. Um, so I think that's part of it, is to recognize your structural location. It's, it's supremely important you do that. Um, and of course, you know, anthropology as a field is trying so hard to move away from uh, these, uh, the predatory extractive model of doing uh, field work. Um, uh, and also, I, I, you know, this is, this is where I feel we really need to make, um, a headway. And it's here. Um, I mean, recently Atul Gupta, for example, gave a you know tremendous talk at the AAAs about decolonizing anthropology. And I really appreciated the points he was making about um, how we need uh, this racial reckoning, right? That's happened in, um, those are his words, uh, that have happened in the field. And we've seen Dalit scholars have pushed for a caste reckoning as well. I feel, you know, the Kashmir reckoning has not happened. Um, in uh, South Asian studies or for that matter in anthropology. And I think that's what we need. We need a moment, right, of Kashmir reckoning, whatever that means and however we want to engage with it. Um, so one way I, I think of, you know, and this, there's this norming, there are multiple norming practices that happen when, for example, you, um, you, you see Kashmir uh, perhaps as an Indian scholar, as, as a non-Kashmiri scholar. And those norming practices, I, I feel that's what we need to unsettle. So for example, the way I think about it is um, see Kashmir as a frontier, right? It's this frontierization of Kashmir that happens through anthropology where you have this intrepid uh, anthropologist, you know, and Kashmir becomes a stomping ground for intrepid anthropology. I, I, I really think that that's something we need to challenge uh, because guess what, you know, that is a space, uh, as any, as any other space, of course, but Kashmir in particular has a sedimented history of oppression um, and structural violence and state violence and military and secret state violence. We just need to reckon with that, uh, especially I think as a scholar with a, even for me, I'm not even, I mean, as a Kashmiri pundit, I have to constantly justify my politics to my Kashmiri interlocutors to my Kashmiri colleagues. I am responsible for that. I cannot take trust for granted ever. I have to constantly work to cultivate that trust every moment of my existence. Um, and I take that as a responsibility. I don't take that as a burden. Uh, and that's something I feel we need to recognize. And, um, there's also, yeah, so I, that, that's part of it. And I feel South Asian studies more broadly has also absolutely failed. You know, so while we talk about anthropology and the, this, this, uh, the, the challenge of, the challenge that, uh, um, or the fact that we need to challenge Eurocentrism, but there is this India-centrism in South Asian studies, right? That 
I know people have talked about challenging, but how do we challenge it if we do not challenge the settler colonial models of scholarship that South Asian studies is founded on, right? What I feel we need to move away from is this idea of India as a democracy uh, to the India of in, uh, to the idea of India as a settler colonial power, an empire, an aspirational empire that has expense expansionary ambitions, and part of that ambition is to control Kashmir. If we do not recognize that foundational fact about India's relationship with Kashmir. I don't think any work we do in that region is going to be ethical, critical, or radical in any sense of the word. So, yeah, that's from me. Brilliant. Well, I love that uh, the concept of Kashmir reckoning, actually, and you know the very interesting ways in which it uh, sort of ties into the whole idea of racial reckoning and caste reckoning. And maybe we'll come back to that, as well as the point you made about the complete failure of South Asian studies. But Junaid, as the other anthropologist on the panel, if I could. Get your thoughts on this question. Yeah, um, I think, of course, Mona laid out uh, quite well. Um, I mean, the recognition has to be uh, from with an anthropology about what kind of place Kashmir is and is becoming, you know, or what in, India has made out of Kashmir. Um, I, I think that settler colonialism produces uh, its own sort of field effect um, that. Uh, that has a sort of like a, a history that um, needs to be recognized, especially, you know, when we go back to this question of positionality and research, um, you know, recognition of where one comes from uh, means recognizing uh, certain things that are not available to everyone or that isn't that accountability is um, in a way, um, in, in some cases, uh, more kind of a, a responsibility of certain kinds of uh, people or, or where they come from. Um, the second, of course, uh, thing is that um, there are some like basic anthropological things. I think um, more and more I realize that research on Kashmir is now um, is dropping some of the even traditional ethical ideas like learning the language. Um, you know, um, uh, in 2014, while I was kind of like uh, doing some research and there was this massive flood in Kashmir, and I was um, in South Kashmir, which is like where I grew up. Um, and they were like journalists, Kashmiri journalists, unfortunately, who would like come up to the villagers um, and ask them questions in Hindi. Uh, to, I mean, of course, they were reporting for for Indian news channels and telling them to talk about their suffering. And um, what was quite uh, interesting and heartbreaking to me was the way uh, these, um, you know, Kashmiris would respond to them, like talk, tell them, ask this, say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. But when the Kashmiri journalists would speak in Kashmiri, that sir and ma'am would go away. Um, what it told me was that there is a language of command, you know, Hindi, Urdu is a language of command in um, uh, Kashmiri. We are very well aware of uh, how the military speaks and uh, sometimes like researchers who may come from outside or who may, journalists who may come from outside or Kashmiris who kind of like take on that mode uh, occasionally, they speak like military generals or military officers and which evokes a certain kind of response from Kashmiris. Um, um, there's, so this is one sort of effect that this uh, not learning the language creates. Second um, is the idea of, for instance, that there is an entire, um, you know, experience of Kashmir, you know, the, um, the Kashmiri culture, society, history that is deeply ingrained and very complex and complicated. 
um, much like you know histories of other people, um, which remains opaque when you do not uh, speak the language of the people. Um, I think that that is. Uh, I'm not trying to say that you know you cannot do research there if you are not speaking the Kashmir language of the people um, um, there, um, but I think it demands um, additional accountability, like you know recognition of that and knowing that your what you are what you're finding is inadequate. Uh, you know um, that Kashmir kind of remains that the people's uh, experiences remain opaque to you. Um, because this language of command also produces this savior mentality among many researchers, like who might go from outside and uh, try to um, translate their own idea of uh, suffering um, onto Kashmiris, projected onto uh, Kashmiris, who then have learned also, many of them have learned to speak the same language. You know, so it just becomes this repetitive process where um, the complexity of our, our people, of our culture, society, and languages is like completely erased, flattened um, to just like suit the agenda of the researcher as the savior. You know, so, um, so the recognition of these things is quite important. I think uh, that um, Kashmir is fragmented, but you know, the settler colonialism has sought to fragment Kashmir. It is fragmenting Kashmir. But there is also um, a lot of resilience among people, you know, we hold together as a people because there is a much longer history of Kashmir uh, of, you know, that unites Kashmiris that kind of like uh, makes them a people than, than what the Southern colonialism kind of seeks to achieve, you know, so recognizing that is quite important. Yeah, really important points about, you know, what Joel Robin has called the suffering subject and how the suffering subject suddenly explodes in certain places. But I think that's a really important point you've also raised, Janet, about language. And, you know, like something that has distinguished anthropology, at least in the past, is this capacity to learn languages and, you know, as you're saying, the language of the people. But if they're even abandoning that, then, you know, it makes anthropological project even more complex in Kashmir. Um, perhaps we can move on to thinking about history, though, perhaps, uh, or, yeah. If yeah. So I think I would start off by saying that the structure of the neoliberal academy is such that it makes it very easy for these ethical breaches to emerge and, from, and for scholars from the global north to exploit the power differentials that exist, especially um, with the, if they work on the global south. So I think a complete rethinking of knowledge production needs to happen alongside ensuring that our existing practices are held to a higher ethical standard. And this is especially true for uh, colonized or occupied spaces. In history, and this may sound bizarre, and I only mention it because it happens, it's important not to steal or take away archival material with you. Um, and this has happened in Kashmir. So on one, like on one level, I mean, forget um, different kinds of ethics and thinking about you know, your positionality. Um, people are doing something as extractive as taking material with them. Um, but then there are broader questions of research ethics that all researchers must consider. Um, there's a tendency for researchers to simply mine their research subjects or um, the area for information and data. Um, I think it's important for ethical research to give back through mentorship, workshops, helping others, and speaking out in solidarity. There are also models of collaborative scholarship that can be followed, especially when working with researchers in Kashmir. Um, are they being paid adequately? Are we understanding their limitations and not imposing our own standards on them? Um, and are we also allowing them to define the contours of the research instead of imposing um, our, you know, our research practices on them? Um, 
And then I think just broadly, people need to ask, you know, what kinds of connections are they using to access um, their research site? Uh, what are their connections to the state? What are their connections to the bureaucracy? Are they being transparent those methods and those um, and those uh, connections? Um, and are there stakes? I mean, if you are a researcher in Kashmir and you're not um, then that is really problematic um, to begin with. Yeah, thanks so much, Hafsa. I mean, shocking the archival like robberies, but uh, yeah, I'm not that surprised, unfortunately. Um, just to pick up, you know, this question of what are the stakes of doing research in Kashmir, uh, as well as questions of access and power and privilege in the field. You know, what's been really um, interesting and really sort of actually very, very painful also to listen to in a way is to hear the three of you be so honest about your positionalities to talk about your you know the difficulties of it but also you know the way for instance Mona is very honest about the kind of privileges that might come from belonging to a particular caste grouping etc right as well as this question of access that you've all sort of that you've just touched upon right now Hafsa and I wonder whether we could then go back to this point that um you know to follow on from what Akhil Gupta said at his AAA um the presidential speech or whatever the speech that he gave on the racial reckoning and what uh, Mona is recasting is the Kashmir reckoning. I wonder whether, you know, this doesn't open up a question that is now being asked in anthropology, but not just in anthropology, in the social sciences more generally about who has the right to study who, right? Like uh, whether this is upper caste people studying Dalits, whether this is white people studying um, Maoris in New Zealand, or it is uh, for instance, privileged Indians going and working in Kashmir, right? Because the stakes of that project, is, as you were just talking about, are completely different, right? Um, and this brings to mind, I mean, I, I, we can't, you know, I can't not mention it uh, because it's also been part of a conversation that anthropologists have been having for the past few months. Um, the Indian anthropologist who wrote a book on Kashmir, uh, and then it was only subsequent to the, the, the publishing of the book that uh, I think many of us found out, or most of us found out that she actually had close, has had close skin relations with the security state. Uh, and that has opened up, as we know, this very big debate within the discipline, but within South Asian studies as well on positionality, ethics, uh, stakes of research, etc. Um, so just keeping that in mind, I wonder, you know, what would the three of you say about um, Indians who work in Kashmir? And, you know, the question of, you know, how, how do we think about what this Kashmir reckoning might be? Because the stakes for me, for instance, as an upper caste privileged Indian with, you know, with very close relations to the Indian state, um, myself, are completely different uh, from, say, you know, Hafsa, your position within it, or, or Junaid yours. And so I wonder whether this is a con kind of conversation that I really do think we should be having, right? And we are having it in anthropology and in other social sciences on different topics, but we haven't, as far as I know, quite had it in the same way on Kashmir quite yet. And I wondered whether any of you had um, any particular thoughts on this. And I wonder, uh, Mona, whether I could begin by asking you to perhaps comment on it. Right. Thanks. Uh, no, I, I think that's that's a really um, another important question. Uh, you know, I, I do want to preface my answer by saying uh, that uh, Kashmiris, and this is this is a stereotype about Kashmiris, but it's also largely true that Kashmiris are actually um, they they love inviting people, you know, to their homes. Uh, they are uh, in that sense uh, a very inclusive community. And this is something I've, I've learned from people on the ground, people, you, 
you know, human rights advocates, political activists who will say this, you know, we want to invite Indians to, uh, to this place because that's the only way they can see for themselves, you know, what is wrong? What is it that uh, the Indian state has been doing uh, for all these years? So the, I, I, I want to say that, that it's not that anybody can decide uh, who's going to work in Kashmir and who is not. Um, I know that there is the sense that uh, there is some kind of a gatekeeper. And that to me sounds the most bizarre I don't think realize even uh, how gatekept we are, that we can't even visit our homes, let alone have the power to decide who can visit Kashmir and then work there. Uh, that to me is something we first have to acknowledge is that the gatekeeping powers are not with Kashmiris. Had that been the case, this would not have been a settler colonial context. Uh, the gatekeeping powers are somewhere else. And those are the powers that we need to challenge and question. And I think that's what Indian scholars can do um, as, a, as a gesture of so, true solidarity, radical uh, expression of solidarity is to question, is to challenge the structures of power that they are embedded in, uh, or even if they're not necessarily embedded in those structures of power, but might benefit from them uh, one way or the other. Um, I think that kind of a radical honesty, and that's coming from a lot of indigenous scholars, for example, who, who will say to white scholars that it's, it's not that we don't want white scholars to work with us, uh, but we do need some basic commitment to radical honesty. What might that radical honesty look like in particular cases uh, is obviously going to be different. And that brings me to this second important point I wanted to bring, at least important in my head, is that there is no blanket way of suggesting that no, no Indian scholar can ever work in Kashmir, right? Because we've had some wonderful allies, Indian scholars, Indian allies who have worked uh, alongside Kashmiris, who have worked to amplify the voices of Kashmiris in ways that is very respectful of uh, Kashmiri aspirations and their voice. Uh, Having, so that's why I think being very specific about cases is important in, in this in this regard. Um, I I also want to say, um, you know, the other critique sometimes is, and I've heard this now within this case that you you mentioned, uh, a lot of things have been said about, you know, but everybody has access to some kind of a governmental power in Kashmir, and you know that's how things get done in Kashmir. If I were to go to the airport, for example, I need to figure out a way to contact the the DC, right? So that my my passage to the airport becomes a little easier. If I need a mobile, a, a cell phone connection or a SIM, I need to figure out how to contact somebody in the bureaucracy so that I can get things done. Because that is the power of the state over your lives. You need to rely on the state to survive. A lot of people, uh, you know, even elections happen in large part. I mean, people vote because they have a disappeared son they're trying to find in Indian jails. And the only way they can find that son is by voting. So that voting is not necessarily, uh, you know, a, a gesture of support or uh, legitimacy for the Indian government. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a sign of survival, right? It's a sign of uh, the struggle for survival. Um, so what am I trying to say then? is the fact that you cannot equate right all forms of reliance on the government with uh power 
uh, with the state or, or uh, your kind of uh, comfort with the state. Uh, there's, there's a difference between survival and, uh, and, and benefit, if, if that makes sense, right? There's, there's a there's difference between being embedded, being part of the state of paradise, and then once in a while getting benefited from some random distant connection that you might have with the state or in the bureaucracy. Um, so I think that those are nuances we have to keep in mind. Uh, we cannot issue, and we are no ones to issue blanket statements. I mean, we, we, we cannot be, that's, that's a, that is the anti that that is not the feminist practice that uh, at least Kashmiris stand for and that we absolutely need to push for solidarity around Kashmir. So that, that's that's kind of what I want to say. Um, I also want to quickly come back to that critical caste studies folks, for example, are pushing for, which is how does how do we recognize caste as an entrenched social crisis in India, right? It's that. Let's start from there. For for my Indian uh, colleagues from Kashmir, I think recognize the kind of crisis Kashmir has created for the Indian psyche. I think that's where solid decolonial work needs to happen because there's a lot of assumptions we come with. Uh, with Lots of lot of assumptions that structure our time there, that structure our relationships, that structure our interactions, um, and one of them is this idea. I think it's this the wounds of partition that Indians come in with, but those are not wounds that Kashmiris share. Kashmiris have different kinds of wounds. We just need to recognize those wounds Indians come with, and I think that's part of where the decolonial work needs to happen. Um, but yeah, I'll stop there. I might come back to it. Yeah, those are my sort of quick thoughts. Thanks, Mona. I mean, these are really big questions of what does really solidarity mean? But thank you for making that point that, you know, this Kashmiris don't actually have the power to gatekeep. And I have found it absurd when I've heard some statements around that uh, myself. Um, but also, I think a very important point you made about not like flattening out privilege and saying, but we're all privileged, you know, we all get access from the state, we all use access and privilege. We need to be nuanced and specific in each case. So thank you for that. Um, Jeanette, could I ask you to weigh in? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd just like to start by saying that, you know, um, this whole notion of like certain places, especially colonized spaces being murky spaces, you know, um, then, I mean, it is true that like, you know, it's complicated. Um, every society is complicated. Uh, but to use that argument and then to kind of translate into, well, Chalta, you know, if the place is murky, research practice can be murky as well. I think that we need to really question that, that, um, you know, it is not a justification for, um, you, you know, this uh, um, the, the, uh, kind of projecting something from a place onto one's own identity is not a good practice. Um, uh, but also the second um, question and, you know, the larger question that you asked earlier about South Asian studies, uh, um, my sense is that, um, you know, this disciplinary recognition within South Asia, um, I mean, in the most sort of critical tradition so far, 
um, which you know avowedly disavow sort of like Indian nationalism, um, continue to kind of remain embedded within a traditional idea of like what India is and you know its territorial boundaries, and um, it becomes like a trap to scholarship as well. Um, you know, if uh, people use the term uh, internal colonialism instead of settler colonialism, uh, in itself um, shows, and not only are you repeating this um, uh, sort of Indian government narrative that Kashmir is an internal problem, but also this idea of internal colonialism where, you know, um, I mean, I remember this uh, essay by Gyan Pandey many years ago, 2006, I think, when he was writing about the time of Dalit conversion, he had used the term uh, internal colonialism to suggest that the Dalits and Muslims in India, uh, they are internally colonized because uh, they have nowhere to go. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they feel colonialism, yet they cannot, they don't, they, they don't know where to go because they're geographically dispersed. And the same argument was then repeated years later by um, Partha Chatterjee, right? You know, Kashmir is internally colonized. Um, my sense was that um, Kashmir is not internally colonized because Kashmiris are not geographically dispersed and they have actually a deep sense of their own history, um, regardless of their relationship with India, you know, or regardless of the colonial relationship that India has imposed on Kashmir. Um, to me, when you look at these even critical traditions of thought, and then you realize that um, they have not kind of disabused themselves of this uh, incipient nationalism, um, you begin to realize that uh, that um, sometimes like to be Indian may be quite problematic. You know, uh, to call yourself Indian or think like an Indian is deeply problematic, especially when you come as an Indian to Kashmir. Um, I don't think that there is a possibility, you know, I mean, especially, you know, then you mix up with other things like Kashmirism, epistemic murk or a political murk. Um, there's not even a possibility that you can like separate your Indianness from um, what you're trying to achieve. You know, you might have the best intentions in the world, um, but you still remain sort of embedded in, the, in, in your nationalist universe one way or the other. Um, I mean, the third point I would just like, uh, I think that related to the controversy that you mentioned, I think that one of the things that was mentioned was the sole diaspora thing that, you know, um, um, it, it is in a way sort of kind of a, like a state project. We have heard so many times like the JNK administration saying that the diasporic uh, academics and intellectuals and activists are trying to provoke Kashmiris back home in Kashmir into some kind of rebellion. First of all, that is not true. Um, and then they tell the Kashmiris that if you listen to them, then, you know, there will be costs. Uh, first of all, I mean, of course, you know, it just clearly shows that Indian government is um, intent on uh, like suppressing all forms of uh, protest in Kashmir and or all voices in Kashmir. Um, but also this um, new categorization of Kashmiris as diasporics sort of like is a way to um, disconnect like, you know, Kashmiris from um, might have gone abroad. Um, you know, um, it is a colonial project to take away Kashmiri intellectuals already, as we have mentioned, like it has happened in Kashmir where uh, Kashmiri intellectuals are all continuously put out of circulation or suppressed. 
but even those who might have some privileged space to speak they are disconnected from kashmir um you know um in this anthropological hierarchization of anthropologists and the native native is always imagined as this incarcerated located person as soon as the native goes abroad and starts to their own research uh you know they become a problematic category um i i think that we need to recognize um some of these issues that have arisen and i think this is a moment of reflection that's what i would say um thanks junaid i think that's a really important point you make about the methodological nationalism that underpins so much of the scholarship in kashmir even by you know the great swerdon on nationalism critically but they're not able to escape it when it comes to kashmir and i think that's a really important um intervention that we're also you know seeing in the recent scholarship in kashmir say some of the work that you guys are doing or the critical kashmir studies work is really making you know us rethink um settler colonialism questions of occupation rethink uh, kashmir as a particular kind of space so it was a really important um have some i don't know whether you had any thoughts yeah. on this um yeah i think for indian scholars to do research on kashmir they have to really unpack the assumptions that they come into a region that their country maintains an active colonization in um so one thing to consider and this you know people may agree or disagree um is the type of research that indian scholars engage in So what are the ethics of them coming into Kashmiri communities entering their most intimate spaces to study the impact of especially when as has been mentioned before the result of this research is an obfuscation of the primary vectors of violence or subjugation which is the Indian state or claims of how things are complicated and all Kashmiris are somehow compromised what does it mean for an Indian scholar to make those claims that they're compromised limpos within the colonized community So rather than making Kashmiris their research subjects why can't they not research their own oppressor community and understand the state ideology and society that enables settler colonization um and India's genocidal project in Kashmir Thank you Hatsa um just sort of moving on from anthropology i wonder whether we could think about something that all three of you have also referred to previously through this conversation uh, which is the field broader field of south asian studies right and uh, like mona said that you know south asian studies has failed kashmir um i wonder whether you could think a bit about, you know whether we could have a bit of a discussion here about uh just the sort of the trajectory of south asian studies so how has it engaged kashmir traditionally or not engaged with questions of kashmir and where might you know people like you who are doing you know incredible cutting edge work right now on kashmir where might you see it going in the future um junaid i wonder whether i could ask you to respond first um yeah i mean we have uh you know uh, the so called what's called indian scholarship on kashmir has actually started way back during the dogra era um when the in cahoots with the british um who were at the 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 dogra darbar or what's called the kashmir darbar at the time kind of began the process of erasure of kashmiri muslim history kashmiri uh, muslim identity um and it was the colonial officials the brahmins in kashmir and indian um upper caste uh, upper caste officials who produce enormous amount of knowledge i mean you, we have to realize that uh, the dogra administration has del- had deliberately kept kashmiri muslims which were like 96% of the population um um any um 
you know, from education. Um, and and that, that's the reason, one of the reasons, like, education was a big sort of emancipatory slogan in Kashmir starting 1930s. Um, that process where the Indian state sort of sought to locate some kind of Sanskrit past in Kashmir um, has earlier roots. And that continued in, in even so-called secular institutions like uh, Archaeological Survey of India and other um, such institutions. Um, the, the, the types of kind of research grants that Indian institutions would give, granting agencies would give to researchers was really about discovering that um, Hindu past in Kashmir. And of course, you know, Kashmiris uh, all Kashmiris, Hindus, Muslims are aware that Kashmir has a um, sort of like a plural past. You know, um, there are uh, uh, there's Muslim histories, Hindu histories, um, or experiences, and which is like part of this larger uh, sort of thing that we call the history of Kashmir. Um, but after 1947, when the when Indian colonization began in Kashmir, occupation began, that process continued. I mean, um, except now, it, uh, the Indian state sought to present Kashmir as like as an integral part of, you know, not just simply in terms of like a territorial boundary, but civilizationally, um, kind of eliding um, all the other plural histories of Kashmir, which linked it to many other regions, uh, you know, uh, in, in South Asia and Central Asia. Um, that has kind of continued. It has become the main substrate from which like Kashmiri scholars or uh, allied scholars from other places in India or in the world uh, have sort of sought to extract Kashmir. Like um, we have sought to try to argue that, you know, uh, India cannot be the this <laughs> sort of some master signifier in understanding Kashmir, um, uh, and I think even the sympathetic scholarship that has continued to exist, um, you know, alongside this brazen form of imperial scholarship, um, sometimes uh, kind of like you know adopts a sort of this so-called liberal approach where or liberal nationalist approach which would argue, uh, for instance, political science is like the probably the worst offender in this, where the uh, research is about like how to benignly control Kashmir, um, how to be nice to Kashmiris to maintain control over Kashmir, you know? Um, and you know, I, I think that this, this kind of sentiment and, and I call it a sentiment because it is a incipient nationalist sentiment that remains uh, part of um, South Asian studies um, um, has uh, sort of erased um, Kashmir. I mean, it may not be overtly violent, but it is uh, violent in epistemic terms. It, it, it has erased Kashmiri history and Kashmiri experiences. Um, and South Asian studies has not been able to sort of overcome this. Um, um, you know, even as I said earlier, even the critical traditions of thought, um, um, like for instance, take subaltern studies, um, you know, in some of the earliest uh, writings of subaltern studies, uh, Kashmiri history is continuously being presented as Indian history. Um, you know, Kashmiri texts from the past are continuously being represented as um, Indian um, texts. Um, and I think that's erasure. Uh, that is part of the settler colonial. Um, it, it, it may seem um, overtly liberal and nice, but it is part of this larger settler colonial erasure and which is unfortunate.
Thanks, Junaid. Hafsa, did you want to? Yeah. So the, the main thing that I would add is that there is an imposition of a liberal secular epistemology when it comes to Kashmir, but also when it comes broadly to Islam and Muslims um, in South Asian studies. So Muslim aspirations can only be legible or palatable in particular ways and not in others. So I've had a number of senior Indian scholars tell me that they would support the Kashmiri freedom movement were it not for the Islamic nature of the resistance. So where does one even begin to unpack that level of bigotry? There's a lot of assumptions um, there that need to be challenged. Um, and what is perceived as the original sin, the creation of the state of Pakistan, also looms large in Indian framings over Kashmir. So Pakistan is like this continuous dead horse that they like to beat. And I'm reminded of when um, the CAA legislation was passed and some of the senior Indian scholars, all they could say was beat their chest and declare that India has become a Hindu Pakistan. Um, and so this is the level of analysis and complete erasure of their own history um, that we're dealing with, even among scholars that claim to have an anti-Hindutva politics. Thanks, Basu. Um, I think we'll come to Hindutva politics. <laughs> we can't not talk about that in a minute, but Mona, perhaps you could get your thoughts on it and then move on to. Yeah, no, just sort of echoing what's been said already. I, I couldn't agree more with Hafsa's um, last point, right, about uh, Pakistan, I mean, this, even the way we talk about Indian politics, the Taliban, Talibanization of India, I mean, it's just so problematic uh, because of how it is inherently Islamophobic. Uh, there's no recognition as such um, of how Pakistan, as she said, becomes kind of this horse that you keep kind of uh, whipping um, in order to score points, some sort of uh, points. Um, politically point, ideological and political points and to make yourself feel better about your sort of existence as an Indian uh, quote-unquote secular polity. Uh, having said that I think the other the other ways it's I, I sometimes feel South Asian studies needs to rescue itself from its own self you know it's it's not simply just about Kashmir caged in this area studies model but it is it is the area studies framework it's in and of itself uh, that is very limiting that's deeply limiting and you know this has come up in a lot for example in university settings where you bring up this question and i think immediately uh, you shut down because funding is so related to uh, how the us is uh, you know structured the university system at least in the us i can't speak for how it works in the uk but there is this sort of embedded area studies model, which is essentially, what is it? It's, it's a surveillance intelligence gathering model. That's at least how it started. That was its origin. And we have kind of, we have continued uh, to, uh, you know, rely on that to reproduce that model rather than thinking, um, you know, rigorously about what alternatives we can uh, potentially uh, think through. Uh, because I think what, what does area studies model really uh, erase, for example, right? For me, it is this idea, this belief uh, that India is a democracy. It's a vibrant democracy. It's a, it's a huge market. Um, also for the universities. And that's where I feel South Asia, cent South Asia centers or South Asian studies find their kind of limits because there's only so much they can push against. So you have centers in India, uh, you cannot, of course, uh, you know, cut ties with them. You can't, uh, 
question them too much. Um, so there are these implicit institutionalized ways in which Kashmir keeps getting folded into the larger ambit of India and Indian democracy. So whatever happens in Kashmir is not because of Kashmir, because of Indian settler colonialism, it is because of the failure of Indian democracy, right? Uh, so it's it's not because of India's expansionary uh, empire, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not because of its expansionary um, aspirations, it's because, uh, you know, India just needs to fix certain things, fix the ways it conducts elections, fix the way uh, the military operates, and then everything's going to be fine. So I think it's this constant sort of folding of Kashmir into the Indian studies model, into the South Asian studies model, that has led to an active erasure of uh, what can even be said. Um, I mean, for example, uh, we have now, we use the word occupation um, and we claim it uh, to depict the context in, uh, in, in, in Kashmir, but it is, it is, it's difficult. And I, I know it's gonna come up with the Hindu, Hindu right becoming active in, in the US and how that space here is gonna get even more limited, how that space is already shrinking quite a bit, not just in Kashmir, but also for us here. I'll, I'll leave that to the, um, to the other, uh, to, to the perhaps uh, a later question. But, you know, I think one thing we have to recognize what South Asian studies has done is limit our understanding of how Kashmir was, became uh, this sort of colonial pro political project, right? Uh, first for the British and then for India, right? Instead of seeing it as a seam of cultural, political, economic, aesthetic relationships between South and Central Asia, um, as, as sort of this entrepot, if you will, uh, between different uh, regions, um, as an active, vibrant space of trade and uh, commerce, it became this hinterland. It became the quote-unquote border, uh, even if de facto. And that's that's been sort of the epistemic violence uh, that Janaid mentioned, but it's also led to so much political violence and so much bodily violence against Kashmiris for demanding a different kind of a geography that would sit better with their own sense of history and their own sense of uh, cultural uh, ethos. Thank you. These are really important points all of you have raised about how like knowledge production, the academy, area studies, South Asian studies, the kind of the violence of these sort of uh, so-called knowledge practices um, on Kashmir. I think I'm going to just ask one last question and just end with that. I, mean, I can see we've got lots of questions already in the Q&A box and I'm assuming more will come through. Uh, and I'd like to, us to have a chance to be able to respond to at least some of them or the ones you guys would like to respond to in the Q&A box. Um, but perhaps I could just end by asking this question about the neoliberal academy as well, right? We've talked about the origins of area studies, when we've talked about the ways in which history has been written, we've talked about methodological nationalism. Um, but I wonder whether we could talk about the contemporary neoliberal academy as well as the attacks on academic freedom by Hindutva forces, which we're seeing everywhere, whether it's in the UK or, I mean, of course, we're seeing it in India, we're seeing it in the US from what I can make out. Um, and I wonder what this does to the study of Kashmir. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to end, that's like the last question I'll ask and then we'll open it up. But uh, Hafsa, would you like to sort of uh, give this a go? Yeah, so um, in terms of the attacks on academic freedom, uh, many of the many of us have been targeted by Hindutva organizations in the US, um, as well as more recently by the, the administration in Kashmir. 
Um, so colleagues and administrators at my college and others have received emails letting them know that they've hired a terrorist supporter who wants to bring Shakira, not Sharia, law to Pennsylvania. Um, talks and panels of ours are regularly interrupted and disrupted, especially after 2019. Um, there's a series of online campaigns and dossiers that um, attempt to link us to um, extremism and so on. Um, and so one of the most common tactics that this lobby uses is to declare Kashmiri academics or anyone who speaks out on Kashmir as Pakistani agents um, to essentially deny any sort of Kashmiri agency. Um, and then meanwhile, in Kashmir, there's an increasing attempt by the police to create a category called white collar terrorists so that the police can label academics, journalists, human rights activists as white collar terrorists and make them um, subject to the same anti-terror laws. Um, and they're already accusing, as Janae mentioned, people abroad of inciting violence. Um, so, of course, the implications for research on Kashmir are huge. I mean, um, there is a, like the, the fear of being removed from your job, not getting tenure and so on. But then I think more so there's the, the main fear that we, you know, our families or loved ones um, will be harmed um, and also that we won't be able to visit back or to go back. Um, so I think that like what that means for the future of research is is pretty frightening. It's absolutely terrifying, uh, utterly terrifying. Mona, did you want to add to this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that that's the thing that the number of letters you get uh, from multiple sources and the deans are copied and the alums are copied. And uh, th there's a lot of that that's been happening, especially I think um, as you rightly pointed out, after 2019, uh, when the Hindu right has mobilized in the US um, uh, quite a bit uh, and in very sort of systematic, um, deliberate ways. Um, so that's part of it. It is it is this sort of felt threat. Um, there's exit list and entry list, apparently, um, and nobody knows what list you're on uh, until you know, you're then either not allowed to leave Kashmir or allowed to enter. So there is this sort of a fear of um, being um, stopped, right? And that's that's the other way um, research is being uh, stopped. It's being um, discouraged. And I think what's happening is also this tie up between the Hindu right groups here and of course the Indian state and the home ministry, you know, sometimes will be uh, tagged on a tweet and it's also Amit Shah who's tagged on that same tweet. Uh, so there is this clear lines of the clear lines of communication that are being set up where we are being surveilled here, and that has implications for our friends and colleagues and families in Kashmir. So that's part of it. The other thing I want to say is also, unfortunately, how our universities are not equipped at all to deal with uh, the Hindu right in uh, in the U.S., especially in the U.S., and that's what I'm going to uh, focus on. I mean, recently um, there was a big event, uh, the Dismantling Global Hindutva Conference, for example, right? And uh, I know in several universities, a lot was happening, but um, I'll speak to what happened here. Uh, a, a bunch of five Hindu faculty um, uh, from, not from the social sciences, complained to the dean that this conference that Syracuse had supported was, um, they didn't feel safe. Uh, because this was a Hindu phobic conference and they didn't feel safe on their own campus anymore because their own South Asia Center was actually supporting the conference. 
Now, this is what's interesting, right, about this neoliberal uh, university and how they rely on notions of diversity, a very sort of um, formulaic, uh, uh, sweeping understandings of diversity where all you need to have is brown skin to qualify as diverse. And I, I do think that steep, I mean, while we made a lot of strides in many regards, but because there is no intersectional analysis of what diversity means in a neoliberal setting or these neoliberalized ideas of diversity come in the way, they shape uh, how the deans and the administration then responds to uh, questions of freedom of expression and how it then scuttles freedom of expression for scholars such as me, you know, who speak about Kashmir or who speak uh, about the Hindu right. And the, 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 interven the intervention is to, to shut me down because somehow the Hindu, uh, Hindus on my campus are now feeling unsafe. You know, when they're the ones who have these structures, these mega structures supporting them, the state apparatus, both here and in India, behind their backs. So I do want to make, uh, and I've been sort of trying to push that narrative here, that brown imperialism is real, and we need to be able to deal with it. Uh, just because somebody's, someone is brown doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, make them uh, a victim. Uh, I know it's it sounds very simple, but uh, we just need to be able to embrace that fact. Um, one, brown imperialism is real. Third world imperialism exists. And these are not necessarily just third world categories, you know, victim countries of the global south that the US has to now protect. There are other forces at play in the US also politically, socially, culturally, that these universities need to be able to recognize and, and grapple with and figure out a, a way for you know, people to not be scuttled uh, because somebody is playing here the victim card. Um, I mean, that's that's at least how I see it. Yeah, it, playing out in in the context that I'm in. Yeah, I mean, it's a toxic combination of the Hindu right, neoliberal academy, and you know, this diversity discourse. Uh, you know, claims of being hurt. Um, yeah, Hindu injury, it, right? The the Hindu injury is it's it's that's the trope. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's getting, you know, sort of spreading um, quite rapidly across the globe. Uh, Junaid, did you have anything you'd like to add? Um, well, I, I'll just be brief and simply say, adding on to this, that there is an immense amount of money that is flowing from um, um, big Indian corporations into academic centers and American universities, British universities. Um, so um, there are like actual interests, material interests uh, involved now. Um, I suspect that um, you know, Kashmiris would have even harder time um, making a case that there is brown imperialism. That they would be, a, they would have a harder time talking about that uh, diversity is not this, uh, you know, flat thing. You know, there's a lot of um, sort of hierarchies built into uh, diversity. Um, and I mean, I, I think that you know, for us right now, and I, I said at the beginning that I tried to find an academic home for myself that I could pursue questions, but uh, I will end it by saying that only to realize that, you know, there is really no home, um, you know, there is no, um, you know, space uh, where one could pursue research unfettered and, you know, with, 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 you know, keeping in view the interests of the people you're working with, um, because the, 
the long arms of the Indian Hindu Rashtra, Hindu state now extend to American shores. They're, uh, they have control over social media. We, we get emails from Twitter and all of that all the time. Uh, they have control over, they not only send these letters to our departments um, quite often, uh, which are sometimes unreadable because many of our deans and stuff, they, they don't even know how to process all of this. Um, but um, they do they do are they are they're continuously threatening you know their, their reach is immense like they disturb our uh, you know uh, our events uh, i mean uh, have Samona and i were in princeton um, in 2019 and we had a large number of like hindu right-wing activists who just like um gathered there uh, disrupted our event and um you know so and I mean, and these were like the same people who later on met Modi. They were like photographed with Modi in the, that Howdy Modi event. So you can see how the, the these are like people who have access to India's prime minister, you know, they are coming out to disrupt our events. Um, so so I, I think that, you know, the stakes have become even um, higher. Uh, there's a lot existentially there for us. Um, I mean, every day, seriously, when we write words, when we kind of like begin to think or talk or phone and stuff, um, it is a decision we're making because we are in, in a way putting not only ourselves at risk, but also people we love at home at risk. You know, um, um, I mean, uh, sometimes it's hard to talk about uh, these things, you know, openly, but um uh, families sometimes when we get a chance to talk to them they uh, they hide sometimes that they have been contacted um, because they don't want to worry us but we know that they are being contacted and sometimes somebody spills a bean and says yeah they, they're continuously talking i mean every time i talk to my family home i can hear a click um in the phone that okay um somebody's listening in the background so you can't even ask they don't talk to them so um Far from being able to do research, it's just even basic ability to speak to your families has become challenging. So, um, uh, and, and I think that's that's just something I ponder about all the time, like what to do, and I, I really don't have answers. Yeah, thank you so much, Junaid. Um, this has been such an important and you know sort of eye-opening conversation, uh, at least for me, uh, in terms of just the kind of intricacies, difficulties. Um, you know, ethics and morality or working on Kashmir, just the political difficulties, um, it's its kind of staggering. So thank you so much for being so honest and open and, you know, there's very deep um, sort of um, linkages that you're sort of drawing out, which are really hard actually to immediately grasp. And, you know, I can see that in some of the debates we've had more recently on the ethics of writing on Kashmir, the kind of nuances the three of you have teased out in this conversation are completely missing. So I do hope that in some way we can, I mean, of course, we're recording this, but I also hope that there's some way in which you, the three of you can find a way of writing about this or putting it out there, because I do think uh, this conversation is missing from the wider literature uh, on Kashmir. Um, but but anyway, thank you so much for this. Um, we have, 